Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Westminster. It's good to be here. And um, I'm just glad to share a Sunday morning with y'all. Um, it's, it's just a real treat to be able to see the kingdom of God at work throughout the state of Mississippi. Most of y'all worship at the same church every day, but I get to worship both on campus in RUF, uh, Christ Pres, or College Hill in Oxford, and even get to travel over here in the Delta. And I just want you to be encouraged. God is at work, both in our college students, but also in our church at large. Um, part of the privilege of being a campus minister is we kind of get early access to a lot of the things going on in the broader culture. Uh, some of you may be aware now, since the internet has come of age, since social media has come of age, that uh, we are in the fake news era. I don't know if you've had the chance when a earth-shattering event, or even, even something as simple as a hurricane happens, everybody has a different take on it. And it can be disorienting as you try to figure out what is true and what is false. There is actually a picture of a shark that is swimming down an interstate that I think goes on social media every single hurricane or flood, and they're like, look at what's going on. I don't even think it's a real picture. But you get the point. It's hard knowing what's true. It's hard knowing what to trust. It's hard knowing the source of where we're getting our information. I think this problem is not a new, new problem, though. This problem is actually a problem the church that Paul was writing to and Galatia was facing as well. Paul had planted this church many years before, and yet when he left to continue his church planning endeavors, some false teachers came in, as Paul says earlier in Galatians 1, the passage, before we re- the passage we read today. And they were starting to spread what Paul would call fake news. They were starting to question whether or not the gospel was really all about Jesus' grace whether it's about what he has done and he accomplished and even what he has done to get you all the way home. They're saying, no, Jesus is great, grace is okay, but also you need to follow some laws. You need to get some legalism into your Christianity. And what Paul is doing in the whole book of Galatians, Galatians is he's continuously fighting this false gospel of legalism with different ways. And today, I want to dive into the way he fights it through his own story. And maybe consider how the gospel speaks to our own stories, how it manifests in our stories through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, both in our sinfulness and in Jesus' grace. So I'm going to read for us Galatians 1, 11 through 24, if you would join with me in following along. The Apostle Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I, would, I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. 
Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute the, us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let me pray for us as we consider God's word. Father, it is a great privilege that you have condescended to us in your word and allowed us to understand who you are and how we might, as sinners even, relate to you. So we ask that your word would be lifted up. We ask that we would understand and even apply the great truths that we find in the scripture. And we can only do this through your Holy Spirit and in the strong name of Jesus. So we pray in their name. Amen. So we're going to look at three points today. Where does the gospel come from? What does the gospel do to us? And then what does the gospel do through us? So that first point, where does the gospel come from? I ask this because Paul in verse 11 and 12, this is the first thing that he addresses. And what he says is that the gospel very explicitly does not come from man. Meaning it's not from man's intellect or creativity or own wisdom that the gospel comes from. Paul says the gospel, the source of it, comes from a revelation, at least to him, from a revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, before we talk about how God works in us and through us, why is it important that we know where the gospel comes from? Why is Paul trying to hammer home this point? Well, if you think about it this way, in many recent years, there's been a health foods trend. When I lived in Birmingham, there was like a Whole Foods and a Trader Joe's and a Fresh Market, what it seemed like on every corner. And the food that they're promoting is, has all these little taglines that I hardly understand. Organic, grass-fed, free-range, non-GMO, you get the deal. We have all these certain taglines that we put on our foods. And the reason that we are so obsessed with how our food is made, where it comes from, is because we really care about what's going in our bodies. Because what goes in our bodies, we need to know that the source is good. The source is beneficial. It's going to lead to life. And what Paul is saying here is that we should also think the same things about the narratives that we believe. That our understanding of how life works, where the good life is found, what we want to be in life, what we should aspire to in life, how we should relate to community, we should also check the source of where we get those narratives to. And what Paul is saying here is essentially, if any of your ideas about where the good life is found come from man, his own creativity, his own ingenuity, and you probably have a bad source. Why is that? Um, there was a comedian on a podcast, I'm not going to name him just for that sake, but he was talking about his phone. He was talking about why we're so obsessed with our phones. And this comedian said this, and it's kind of dark, it's not even that funny, but he says, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty forever just that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. You know it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, when you're finally not looking at your phone and distracting yourself, you're in your car, and you're going, oh no, here it comes, that I'm alone. You know it starts to visit on you. It's just the sadness that is inherent to us, that life is just tremendously sad and lonely just by being in it. What he's saying there, this comedian is actually quite profound. I, I might need a therapy session after consuming that again, but it is quite profound. What he is saying there is, look, our best ideas about how life works are not found in us because the deeper we dive into our souls, the less knowledge we find, the more void, 
the more emptiness, the more loneliness that we find. Essentially what he's saying is a lot like what Paul's saying. You need to check the source of how you're living your life, what narrative you're buying into, because if you try to find that source in another man or even in your own heart, that's void. It's empty. None of us knows the answers to these questions. That's the result of sin, that we are blind when it comes to knowing how to navigate our lives. We are lost on what actually gives us joy, happiness, fulfills our deepest longings. We're told countlessly in all sorts of ways that a family will fulfill us, a spouse will fulfill us, a career will fulfill us, a workout routine, a new body, more accumulation, some more vacations. All of these things will fulfill us as long as we can keep accumulating and yet we're all still searching. Man's best ideas have yet to provide for man's greatest need. And the profound reality that Paul is pointing out in this passage in verse 11 and 12 is that because the gospel is revealed through a revelation of Jesus Christ, because the source of the gospel is actually God, while it sounds crazy, that actually makes it more trustworthy. The reason we know this is because if the source of the gospel is not from man's best guess but from God, then that means that God, the creator of man, is the one, the one that created these longings, the ones that created the way of life we're supposed to walk in. That would mean he would have the best idea. What Paul is saying is, look, these false teachers have come into your church and they've given you their best guess of how life works, but I got my revelation from God. The source, the creator of all mankind, the one who created your heart, your longings, the one who knows how to fill them, that's where the gospel comes from. So we need to listen to it. A campus minister friend of mine started to ask this question to a student he called Annie. Annie was a beautiful, successful, driven student at NYU. She was pursuing a career in professional dance, and yet she was just admitting to him how lonely, how exhausted, how fatigued she was. She'd achieved everything that she wanted to in college, and yet she was struggling with an eating disorder, dysfunctional relationships. And he asked her the question, this question that Paul's asking, why did you think those things were going to fulfill you in the first place? What narrative are you buying into and where is its source? Is there a better story that we might be perhaps invited to in the gospel? One where we're not just giving our best guess at how life works. Second point, what does the gospel do to us? Uh, some of you know I lived the last three years in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And Jonesboro, Arkansas is great. Uh, it's a delta town. And the, the one thing it's not great at is like really good local restaurants. We, we just longed for some good local food. You could imagine just every single chain restaurant in all of American history was there. It was great. But when we were inevitably having that marriage discussion that you have like every Friday or Saturday night when you have kids because you're too tired to cook, where do you want to eat? It, we were kind of just like stuck after three years. We were like, look, all those are fine. All those options are fine but there's nothing that's really speaking to us. They're all kind of just mediocre. Nothing really hits home. In many ways, I think that's kind of a microcosm of what our college students and maybe even us are facing today. We're getting thrown all of these ways that we can fulfill these longings that are deep in us. All of these ways that we can pursue the good life, the successful and wealthy route, the beautiful family route, the nice religious person route, 
the political person route, the sports person route. We're handed a million options, and yet none of them seem to be working great. But when Paul talks about the gospel, what he doesn't say, as you'll notice in 13, 14, and then 15 and 16, we're going to contrast those. What he doesn't say is that he just realized one day that it was the best option. That he just figured it out and that you should go and follow the gospel too because it's working out for Paul. If you look at verse 13 and 14, Paul shows you what exactly happened when he tried to follow his own wisdom. He says this. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. What he was saying there is, look, when I followed my own course of action, you know where it got me. It got me to persecuting people, to murdering them, to division, to self-righteousness, to arrogance, to not having my soul's desire for community and wholeness actually fulfilled. I was zealous and my zeal could not be quenched. And yet in 15 and 16, look what happens when he gets the gospel. Instead of saying, I, 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 the subject switches to he, but when he who set me apart before I was born called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. What Paul has just described there in that contrast of 13 and 14, with all the eyes, and then when the subject of his story finally switches to he, what he's, what he's, what he's communicating there is Christian conversion. When God took over his story, where the Lord called him out of his own way of living, his own best wisdom of how to fulfill his longings and drew him to himself. When God became the main character of his story and what God says, or what the, what the scriptures say, what Paul is really inviting us to is do you see the beauty of the gospel of God taking over your story? My students often struggle with this verse um, on campus because it's, a, it's really big on the sovereignty of God. I mean, there's not really much wiggle room there to say that like Paul chose anything. Uh, when he who set me apart before I was born called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul is basically saying, look, God overpowered my life against my will. And the way I try to communicate God's sovereignty in our salvation, how this is good news and comforting instead of suppressing and uh, a little bit overpowering in the way that we understand it uh, conceptually, I don't try to reduce God's sovereignty because Paul doesn't actually give us that choice. Paul's pretty explicit about it. The way I try to answer this question with Paul's life here is not is God sovereign in the way he works in people's hearts, but how is he sovereign? If you look at Paul's life before God took control, before God actually pulled him out and showed him the beauty of Christ and converted him, look what he was reaping. Futility, chaos, brutality, division, he was continually trying to self-justify, to build a reputation, a name, a legacy for himself. But look what happens when God takes over his story. Look how God uses his power in Paul's life. He turns his self-righteousness into self-sacrifice. He wants to go to the Gentiles. His ambition changed from division to inclusivity. He's working in conjunction with other apostles and the church globally. His toxic community ran to a community of grace. All he wants to communicate to people is that they're loved. When God took over Paul's life with his sovereignty, what he did was actually take over his life in a good way. 
That's how God uses his power. Our task as Christians is not to lessen God's attributes to make it more palatable for us. Our task is to see how God uses his attributes with his character. That he, in Jesus Christ, shows mercy to sinners. He uses his power to unite a people that were once divided. He uses his goodness to woo us to himself. He uses his love to break all the chains on our hearts, all that guilt and shame we keep piling up. If we want to see who God is and how he uses his power, we have to look no further than Jesus Christ. And what we see in Jesus Christ is that we need to thank God that he is still sovereign. Because when we try to be sovereign on our own, it leads to nothing. And yet, and in love, he overpowers us, invites us to himself, overtakes us our story. And before I end this point, the last question I kind of get with our, with our students is, okay, God's sovereign in salvation. I kind of want that for my life. I see how futile my life is, and I really am lost. I want, I want to be a part of Jesus's community. But if God's sovereign, how do I know if I'm chosen or not? The way I would answer that, is it good news? Is it good news for you if God did this to your story? Does this sound like a good thing for you? Do you feel needy in the way that you're pursuing futile things in life? If you're there, then, then you know God. If you're there, you're close to Jesus. If you're there, if you see your need, that is ultimately what God uses to work his grace in you. Lastly, last point, what does the gospel do through me? I remember a, a coffee that I had with a student uh, at Arkansas State. We were sitting in the student union Guy with kind of a rough past uh, was also realizing that maybe God was calling him to himself. He was being transformed, even converted by the gospel. And he loved that. And yet he said to me, look, Austin, all of this gospel stuff sounds great. I want to believe that Jesus loves me because of his grace and doesn't hold my sins against me. The part I can't get to is this being a Christian thing. My story is too broken. My sin is too prevalent. I'm too screwed up. I'm not like you, Austin. I'm not a good, buttoned-up pastor. I don't think God can use me. You ever had that thought? Uh, it was in that moment that I realized I had failed that student as his pastor because I hadn't let him in on the fact that I was just like him. Maybe even at 30, even worse off, recognizing my sin more and more every day. We often fall into this lie, and I think it keeps us from believing that Jesus sounds great, his love for me is something I want, but could he actually use me? Maybe he loves me, but he won't use me for his kingdom purposes. But look at Paul's story here, because I think it's an encouragement for you and me who often feel woefully unqualified to be a part of God's chosen people. Verse 22 through 24 Paul tells this story about the churches talking about him. He says, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. What Paul is saying there is that his story, his story of conversion, his story of brokenness, the fact that they all knew exactly who he was and it was recorded on record how bad Paul had been, that story, that God had called him out of all that mess, was not only transforming the people that he was around in his ministry, it was, it was reforming and 
um, comforting, people that didn't even know Paul. And the thing about Paul's story that was creating such an impact, if you look at Paul's story that he even shares here, it wasn't Paul's strengths that were causing people to glorify God. What made Paul's story so useful, so captivating to the kingdom, was it was actually Paul's failures. It was his weaknesses. It was his faults. It was his mess. It was his brokenness. It was the fact that he was so woefully unqualified, and yet Jesus in love moved in a sinner's life like his that gave people hope all the way around the world that Jesus might have a category for them too. That they might be included in this great love, this great forgiveness as well. I think the challenge here for us is what are you doing with the brokenness of your story? Your failures, your weaknesses? Are you trying your best to hide them from God, from yourself, from others? Do you think that if you brought them to the table in this church, in your community, in your friendships, that it would disqualify you from doing fruitful ministry? What Paul says here is that fruitful ministry starts. Your usefulness in the kingdom starts as soon as you recognize your need. As soon as you're willing to admit it. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, I can boast in my weaknesses. To boast means to yell out. That's, what Paul, that's all Paul boasted of. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. The gospel is beautiful because it meets us at our very lowest. Legalism was toxic to the church because it was the lie that we needed to achieve a certain status to be qualified for the love of Jesus. And the gospel is the exact opposite of that. It is when you realize that you are unqualified that you are qualified. That Jesus is not asking you to go halfway. Jesus in love is going to take over your story when you realize that you need him to take over the whole thing. I'll end by going back to that story of that student Annie, that NYU student. Because in that conversation, Annie didn't just start questioning whether or not the narratives, the gospels that she was buying into about the good life might be faulty, might not be working out for her. She also was wrestling with her own conversion, that God had called her to himself, that Jesus loved her in her weakest and most vulnerable and most failing moments. And she said this as she was contemplating what Jesus' love, even her sin, was starting to do to her. Was transforming her life. She said, food started to become food again instead of my enemy. Men became men again instead of my worth. Dance became, became dance again instead of the master of my life. Because of Jesus, life was worth living for the first time. Annie's story and Paul's story here make me realize that Jesus has a category for me. Does it for you? That's how God glorifies himself. When he shows that he can redeem even the, sin, the sinner of sinners. That his blood not only covers your past, present, and future sins, it covers all your weaknesses, all your guilt, all the shame that's holding you back from thinking that you're enough. And so this morning, as it's said in the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, I'll end with this, just that line. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's the invitation. Come to Jesus this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your gospel. Um, it is good news. 
because we know the bad news about ourselves. We know that in sin we are blind uh, to the ways that we can pursue the good life. We know that we pursue it elsewhere. And we know that is an offense against your holiness and your righteousness. And yet in love, you chose to humble yourself even to the point of death in Jesus. So we pray that we would have confidence that we can draw near to you, the throne of grace, because your blood covers us all. So bring us to Jesus as we are, not as we think we should be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.